pray. O Lord and gracious God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word, which is the truth and guides us in all things. Shape us by your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So in a couple days, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. It's often a busy day, right? It's a busy day. There could be travel. There could be guests coming over. Often there's a lot of food, a short prayer, a lot of eating, and then maybe watching the game on TV or playing a, a card game or something or actually going into a food coma, taking a little nap, and then maybe waking up and having some coffee, dessert, talking some more, having a good time, and then people leaving at the very end saying it was wonderful. Is that about the gist of it? Yeah, something like that. So the question is, is that Thanksgiving? So I understand that that's the tradition of Thanksgiving, but is that the source of Thanksgiving? See, really, what's the source of any and all thanksgiving. And it must be God. All thanksgiving really flows from God in praise of him. See, when you, are, when you know God and you are in his presence, there's worship. And when there is worship, there's the praise of thanksgiving. When you are in his presence, there is worship and there is the praise of thanksgiving. See, one of the reasons we gather together every Sunday is to be reminded of who God is, to be able to come into his presence. And when there is presence, there is worship and there is thanksgiving and praise. Oftentimes, though, Sunday can become rote. You know, we kind of go through the motions here. There's not really a coming into his presence. There's just going through the motions. And because you go through the motions, there really is no worship, and thus there is no praise or thanksgiving. See, what if his presence was really taken from you for a long time? Would you yearn for it? Would you desperately seek him to have it back? See, this is something that was very real for the Israelites. The Israelites, if you were here last week, remember we talked about the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Lord. And, okay, here's the quiz, right? Three things in the Ark. It was the Ten Commandments, manna, and Aaron's rod. Okay, good. So, it was before the Ark of the Covenant that the high priest on the holy day of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, would come before the Lord and offer the sins for the nation of Israel. The Lord had promised to be present right there. But the Israelites lost a battle with the Philistines, and the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. What was most precious in the sight of the Israelites, had been taken away from them. And now, 
in 1 Chronicles, also found in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and 6. David had won the battle with the Philistines and the ark was brought back. The presence of the Lord was brought back and there was joyous worship. As a matter of fact, it was so joyous, you would have said David would have been a Pentecostal. That's how joyous it was. I know, all the Lutherans going, I don't know. But there was joy. There was worship. There was praise. There was thanksgiving. So let's learn from David. Let's learn from God what it means to have the praise of thanksgiving. The first is, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. We often hear and say, give thanks to the Lord, right? We give thanks to the Lord. But, but, but what does that really mean? I mean, where do we go from there? Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And that's about as far as most of us get some days. So we don't know where to take it. But actually, David has said, God has said exactly what to do. And the first thing is to call upon his name. To call upon the name of the Lord. To call upon the name of God. Unfortunately, in our day and age, God's name is used so casually, often as a curse word. It's used blasphemously. And certainly the name of Jesus is used in a horrific, horrific manner. How could you honor and worship and praise someone whose name you despise? So what does it mean when we say God? When we say God, we mean the one who is above all things. By the very power of his word, the universe was created. For in the beginning he said, let there be, and there was. When we say God, we speak of him who is eternal and self-existent, who has no beginning and no end. This is nigh impossible for us to consider. For how can the finite grasp the infinite? Bob, sorry, I have to interrupt there. For how can the finite grasp the infinite? You see, there was never a time when God was not. When we say God, we speak of the immeasurable holiness. One who is so pure that he said to Moses at the burning bush to take off his sandals for the very ground that he stood on was holy. One who is so holy that the creatures, the creatures, all the hosts around the throne said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. As David has told us in 1 Chronicles, we are to glory in His holy name. When we say God, we speak of Him in whom nothing is hidden. There are no surprises. There are no secrets from the Lord. None. Even the very depth of your heart is known. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. He is sovereign over all things and we are to tremble before Him. It says this, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. 
Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world is established. It shall never be moved. Very few people tremble at the thought of the holiness and sovereignty of God. For that is what we say when we say God. And yet we speak of God. We speak of God who is love. Who is love itself. A love that is steadfast throughout eternity. As the psalmists say again and again, his steadfast love endures forever. A love that has come and reached out into the darkness and provided light, provided a way for us to come to him. This is what we mean when we say God. You see, when we say God's name, it has a depth, a breadth, an awe, a reverence so great that it should fill our hearts to overflowing and we would want to declare his wondrous works. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and great to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. When you ask somebody about the wondrous works of God, his wondrous works or deeds, I'm going to guess that most people actually start to think about creation, right? We think about creation, and we take a look at the glory of his creation, David said this in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. I mean, really, you take a look at the grandeur of the heavens, the infinite expanse of the universe. And you have to marvel, don't you? And yet you could also take a look at a single cell. And when you look deep into that single cell, there is a marvelous work in there that is really beyond our imagination. So this is the glory of God, his marvelous deeds. But is that all we have, really? Are we just saying, thank you, God, for the glory of your creation, or is there more than that? Are there more marvelous deeds that we should profess? And the clue here is also given by David in 1 Chronicles. See, we are to remember. We are to remember what the Lord has done. And we've talked about this before. To remember isn't just to recall something of old. It's to bring something from the past into the present for full effect. When you recall something from the past regarding God, it fills and shapes your current mindset, your current attitudes, your actions, and beliefs. 
And unless you are filled with what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do, there's nothing really to declare. You have to be filled with what he has done. Let's go to the text again. First Chronicles. Uh, I'm going to do verse 12 through 18. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. His miracles and judgments he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for your inheritance. Now, really, it's easy to think of this just as a history lesson from a long time ago that really has no impact for us today. I mean, those are the promises and the miracles back then, right? What miracles are there today? Well, you were born. You're breathing this very moment. You could say, yeah, those are definitely miracles. But is there another miracle even greater than that? Indeed, there is. You have faith in Christ Jesus. That's the miracle. That's a huge miracle. God took you, who were dead in sin, and made you alive in Christ Jesus. You once were a child of wrath. You were dead in your sin. And he brought you to faith. Not by your will, but by his will he did this. And you became a precious child of God. You've been adopted into the family. Your spirit can now cry out, Abba, Father. The miracle is you're not an orphan. You are not cast out, but because of Jesus Christ, who willingly died for your sins and then rose again, you are a child of God. You are no longer a citizen of this earth, but you are a citizen of heaven. And what awaits for you is a precious inheritance that cannot, that will not perish. But you might say, well, hold, hold on, wait a minute. How does that relate back to David? The answer is right before you. Remember his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. So what was the promise that Abraham and that God made to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob? That through them there would be a blessing of many nations. That they would have an eternal land, an eternal home. And the covenant is for a thousand generations. Now, you could say, well, does that mean 20,000 years? Because a generation being 20 years times a thousand, that's not the intent. An everlasting covenant. And you see, that everlasting covenant was not fulfilled by us. It was fulfilled by Christ Jesus. 
through him, through Jesus, many nations are blessed. And in Christ Jesus, you have an eternal land. You have the true promised land through him and him alone. Do you need any more of a miracle to declare his works? What more miracle would you need? See, if that is not the prominent miracle for you, there is no worship. There is no thanksgiving. There is no praise. And therefore, there is no compulsion to declare his wondrous works. To paraphrase Charles Spurgeon, you aren't required to have elegant speech or wonderful turns of phrases in declaring his wondrous works. Rather, the command is this. Tell of all his wondrous works. Let me tell you. The people who really do declare his wondrous works are the ones who truly know how much they have been saved. Often these are the people who are, uh, have fallen on hard times. It could be because of drugs. It could be because of crime. It could be because of broken relationships. Their life has been a shambles. God stood before them. They were before his presence. And he brought them out of death into life. And they are filled with his praise. They are the ones who declare his wondrous deeds. They are the ones who tell of his salvation from day to day because they know of his salvation and they know that's the miracle. It's not that they became rich. It's not that their life has been worked out in the wondrous works that we would think of necessarily. It's because they know of Christ Jesus and him alone. And they tell of his salvation from day to day. And not necessarily with wonderful or eloquent words, but they declare his praise. You see, there's a commentator, F.B. Myers, Meyer. He said this, We do not talk sufficiently about God. Why it is so may not be easy to explain, but there seems to be too great a reticence among Christian people to talk about the best things. We talk about sermons, details of worship, church organization. We discuss men, methods, churches, but our talk in the home and the gathering of Christians for social purposes, too seldom do we talk about the wonderful works of God. The heart does not seek God, the heart does not seek for God and his strength, nor his faith face continually. And therefore, we find it hard to talk about his wondrous works. You see, this is why in Scripture we are reminded again and again. We are reminded to seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. You know, whatever we build up here on earth, houses, businesses, all of that is just but a vapor. It's really but vanity. It's going to all fade away. Our bodies will fade away. But God in his word is eternal. 
And you and I are, as it says, to seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. And when you are in the presence of God, do you know what you do? You sing. Yes, when you are in the presence of God, you naturally want to sing. It says to him, it says, sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Singing is an important part of worship, of praise and thanksgiving. It's found throughout the Bible. It's found especially in the Psalms, which, as we covered uh, in that series, they are songs meant to be sung. So why is singing so important? Well, it encompasses the mind, the full mind. It encompasses the full heart. It encompasses the body. It encompasses the soul. It encompasses all of you. As we talked about in the series uh, from Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul. There's a song in there. We even took a look at Revelation chapter 7, in which there was a crying out to the Lord, which, in which it says, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne of the Lamb. But today, I want to take you to another section in Revelation where there's more singing. It's Revelation chapter 15, verses 2 through 6. And I am going to read, uh, I'll just read 2 through uh, 4 right now. And I saw what happened, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also, those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Listen again to what they're singing. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for you are righteous and have been revealed. There is no timidity in their song. There's no bashfulness in their song. They are not ashamed. There's a boldness in their singing a boldness and truth in what they are singing. And I imagine this song is heard throughout the heavens. But they are singing about the fullness of God. They are singing not just because He is a loving God, but because He is holy and His judgment is righteous. David even writes this. He says, The trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes to judge. He comes to judge the earth. See, when you can sing both of his love and his judgment, you sing of the fullness of God. And when you sing, you lift it up in the air as if it were a prayer. St. Augustine said this, 
He who sings prays twice. When you sing to the Lord, because you are in his presence, his, his glory, his majesty, his holiness, his splendor, you're filled with that, his presence. And you lift up your voice in music and in song. Some of you might remember, uh, I told this a while ago, about George Frederick Handel. George Frederick Handel's writing of the Messiah, or specifically the Hallelujah Chorus. Let me give you a little background first. George Frederick Handel was born in Germany in 1685. He was a natural musician from a very early age. He eventually made his way to England, and he found fame and fortune. But by the age of 52, his music had fallen out of favor, he was in great debt, and he also had temporary paralysis of his right hand, writing hand, his right hand, and some blurred vision in his eye. So during this time, and you can imagine how dark of a time it would have been for him, during this time he came across a libretto. That's simply the words for a musical piece. So he came across this libretto that used only scripture that described the Messiah, Jesus. The prophecies, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and final victory over sin and death. Handel was inspired by this. So he went in his room for 24 days, composing what we know now as the Messiah. And there's an account that when he was writing the Hallelujah Course, a servant came and knocked on his door to see if it was okay. And he handled it and answered. And he knocked on the door and he finally shouted and there was no response. So finally the servant went into the room and he found the startled composer with tears streaming down his face. When asked what was wrong, Handel held up the score to the hallelujah moment and cried out, I did think I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself. This is the hallelujah chorus. This is about being in the presence of God where there is music, where there is singing, where there is a depth of awe and joy that overflows. That's thanksgiving. So, this Thursday, you have a choice before you. Which Thanksgiving will it be this year? One that is Thanksgiving unto the day, the tradition. And by the way, I like the tradition. There's nothing wrong with the tradition. But will it stop there? Or will there be a Thanksgiving of one unto him who is eternal? Amen.